originally I thought I'd discuss uh, four um, categories of images, illustrations, narratives, Buddha, land, pictures, and images. Uh, but when I started to put it together, I found out there was too much to say, so I'll just talk until it's time to stop. What time should I stop? But about eight 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 thirty and then, yeah, and then allow questions. Okay. Um, for convenience, I use the term Zen pictures, Zenga, in Japanese. There's a, a fair amount of uh, lack of of uh, agreement about what Zenga are, but most people agree would agree that. Uh, pictures made by Zen monks uh, in China and Japan living in Zen monasteries about Buddhist subjects are Zenka. But there's other people that say, well, any Oriental art or Asian uh, Chinese, Japanese art that conveys the spirit of Zen is our Zenka paintings, pictures. But uh, I'm not a scholar of either art or um, Zen. So, and this is just a practice talk. So for me, Zenga, uh, Zen pictures are any image that supports my, my Zen practice. Um, now this talk is about pictures and, uh, and we'll be looking at pictures, but first I'd like to put in a plug for the seeing itself and for light, which is what seeing is based on after all. Uh, I'm exploring the idea that seeing Zen pictures is not just a way to add information to what we already know about Zen. It's a different way of knowing. Um, so let me talk about seeing. You'll remember from Buddhist psychology that we have six senses, including mind. And in this scheme, each sense is accompanied by a consciousness and by a realm. And the realm um, is a subject, an object, and the actual sensing process, the sense activity. For the um, sight sense, for instance, is a subject like you seeing an object like me. Subject, seeing, object. Three words, three concepts. Uh, we can distinguish them conceptually, uh, talk about them, and that's how we get along. But in actual grammar, logic, and experience, these three are always connected. One, each of them depends on the other two for its existence. Uh, they have no, um, they, they have no self-existence, either any of them in themselves. So because uh, they're never separate, they're empty of self-existence, and they're always found together, we can consider, we can think about them as one thing, object, uh, subject and sensing 
just one thing. So instead of Oscar seeing a thing, we could say a thing is Oscaring. Because after all, what am I except my sense experiences, subjectively speaking? That's not the way we usually think of it, but I think that's maybe how it is. And it's not a bad uh, thing to remember if we're dealing with Zen-type seeing. Uh, It's true for all the senses, but for us and our fellow primates, Sight is the most important sense. Uh, so, and the next thing I'd like to point out is that there's a certain conflation in our minds between seeing and knowing. We say, seeing is believing. And I see means I understand, I know. And there's an even stronger association with light which is, uh, of course, the prerequisite basis of seeing. What we see is not objects, but the light reflected from objects, right? Uh, For instance, we call the medieval era the Dark Ages. The seven, although the sun came up every day, just like it does now, the 18th century was the age of enlightenment. I'm in the dark means I don't know. I see the light means I understand. I've realized something. And critically, from my thesis tonight, there seems embedded in human consciousness a strong correlation between light and spiritual insight in Zen and other traditions. For example, certain natural displays of light coming down through clouds, through trees, uh, generate feelings of awe and wonder. Probably all of us here have had that kind of experience. Buddha said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma I. And through Mahakashyapa, he transmitted that to us. We say he was enlightened. Dogen's masterwork, The Treasury of the True Dharma, I, uh, uh, says in the Komyo fascicle, everything is divine light. Everything is divine light. And he counsels us to turn the light within to illuminate the self, the light. He also speaks of an ocean of illuminated clouds, an ocean of bright clouds. In the absorption of the treasure, treasury of the light, Major Master Ejo agrees with him. Buddha, he says, Buddhism is absorption in the treasury of light. This great light provi- pervades the universe. The knowledge of the enlightened is light. Master Kazan called his lineage history the record of transmitting the light. And the contemporary history of women ancestors is called the hidden lamp. My teacher, Tenshin Roshi, 
has said, we're storytelling machines. And when we see through our stories, they turn into light. Even today, um, there are many examples, and even today people report samadhi experiences as having the quality or the impression of an inner light. And this is true not only of Buddhism. Uh, Light halos around a holy person's head are common to both Zen and Christian iconography. And third and fourth century Gnostic writings also refer to the treasury of light and the kingdom of the light. So I'm just saying, uh, all the words and phrases are our main gateways to Dharma knowledge. We've been seeing stuff a lot longer than we've been talking about it in evolutionary history. We know that language is inherently dualistic and delusive and that there is this mysterious sense that light, which we know by seeing, carries transcendental knowledge. Maybe in certain ways, a picture is worth more than any number of words because it can tap into a way of seeing, uh, of knowing that predates language and language's fabricated rice cake versions, painted rice cake versions of reality. So with that off my chest, uh, let's look at some Zen art. Um, uh, Anthony, could we see the first image, please? Oh, there it was. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and can we maybe, yeah, clean it up? Move it. Dim the light. That's, thank you. Is that better? Cool. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so here's St. Francis in the Desert by the great Giovanni Bellini. It's uh, completed in, 18, in uh, 1480. It was a five-year project for him. Uh, it's in the Frick Museum in New York City. It's perhaps the best Italian uh, Renaissance painting in the Americas, certainly the best landscape. Um, we see St. Francis here in a moment of ecstatic awe. In Zen, we'd say he's having a Kensho or Satori experience. It's a big painting, about four feet by almost five, and uh, needless to say, this reproduction um, does not really do it justice. Despite the name, it's not a desert scene. Uh, it's an Italian landscape with a walled city in the background. Uh, between us and the town is a river, it's partly in shadow, and a bridge, uh, a little hard to see in this uh, reproduction. From the upper left, sunlight is pouring down through the wind-blown clouds 
and moving light and shadows across the landscape. Now it's illuminating that hilltop castle and most of the town, uh, while part of the hill and the low ground between it and us are shadowed. The light is mostly filtered, but a bright shaft uh, of sunlight is falling squarely on the monk, uh, creating the shadows that only he and objects near him uh, are casting. Uh, uh, Francis, St. Francis, and the limestone ledges he's standing on seem not so much to reflect this light as to actually glow from within with it. And the wind-tossed tree, tree foliage in the upper left corner there, by some trick of this changing light, is only partly illuminated. The branches on the far side are momentarily in shadow. Now, the low angle of the light and the bare tree in the middle ground tells us it's either spring or fall. I think it's probably fall because uh, none of, these, of the foliage looks new and the grape and fig leaves that we might look at later are turning brown. And this kind of dramatic lighting which moves people with awe, with, uh, to awe with its power and beauty, it's unusual but probably everyone has experienced it at some point. And I'd love to hear our experiences later. Um, uh, I had one uh, a few years ago here in Sacramento and actually moved me to write a poem, which if there's time, maybe I'll, I'll read. I actually have personal associations with this picture. Uh, the Frick on uh, 79th and um, and Fifth Avenue is just about a 15-minute walk from where I grew up on 2nd and 67th. And uh, I remember the first time I stumbled across this painting as a young person. It uh, impressed me very much, and uh, it still does. I've visited it many times since, although it hasn't been for quite a few years now. So to help explain why I think this is, for me, this has been a significant painting, I'd like to um, point out some details. And uh, Anthony, could we zoom in on the upper, uh, upper uh, uh, right, upper left, please? And come down a little lower too, so maybe zoom out enough to bring it down to, that's great. Um, so here we have uh, a donkey. A little to the left is uh, what looks like a heron. Uh, in the background is a, is a uh, uh, and to the left is a, a shepherd with his flock of about 18 sheep. Um, the air is very clear the details of the architecture of the city are sharp, uh, and so is the castle. Only in the very far distance, the mountains there, um, do we see any aerial perspective. And pan down, if you will, Anthony, to the bottom of the left side. All the way, that's great. 
Um, so on the left, a wooden trough is channeling uh, a little stream of water that's coming down through cracks in the limestone. Limestone is smoothed by rain runoff. Uh, and this must be where St. Anthony gets his water. And zooming to the right now, uh, Anthony, please, and zooming out a little bit, Zoom out a little bit so we see Anthony, I mean, so we see Francis. Um, so here under an underhanging rock and above is uh, the grape, as uh, a grape arbor, grape arbor, a trellis, is, saints, is the saint's study desk, which is simply made but looks pretty sturdy. A walking cane is propped against it. On the desk are a closed book and a human skull, and on the ground, two sandals. Beyond that is a simple wicker gate of flexible branches, very much like the one like one I saw in Tassajara the other week. Uh, and presumably it's um, guarding uh, a sleeping area. Uh, I think it's it's new, pretty new because it still has uh, uh, the shoots coming from it still have leaves on them. Uh, so here is Saint, uh, the saint in rapture. He's standing still. His arms are open. His eyes are open. His hands are open. Uh, and maybe, he's, uh, maybe his chest is heaving. He's pretty overcome. I get the impression that a moment ago, as he was sitting at that desk, some spirit of sacred feeling descended on him. And impulsively, he got up without stopping to put his sandals on, walked out to behold um, the shaft of light and God's creation. This actually is an illustration of a particular historic moment in St. Francis's life story. But I'm not going to go, and there's a lot of Christian symbolism in this painting, but I'm not going to go into that. I'm just looking at, at it as a picture of a, a person uh, in this state, a psychological state of, um, of uh, ecstatic feeling of oneness with the, with the universe. Uh, and zoom in, if you will, um, Anthony, uh, below Francis's right hand. That's great. Uh, not quite so close. That's good. Below his hand, we see a stump of a fig tree. We can see, no, it's a fig tree, a small fig tree, because it's starting to re-sprout. Uh, we can see the leaves. Fig trees do sprout easily. I speak from experience. Uh, they say if you don't like a neighbor, plant a fig tree on the border, <laughs> on the boundary. Um, and just above that is uh, a mischievous-looking rabbit is poking his head out. Uh, I, I get the impression that the rabbit and St. Francis are habituated to each other. Maybe they're buddies. Uh, and below his left hand, maybe we can pan over Anthony to show that and come down a bit. Good. 
there's a, a ewer, uh, and that's probably what the saint car carries his water in from the, from the spout. And above the ewer, and uh, behind the ewer is a uh, neatly made, uh, stones of a neatly made uh, planter. And in the planter are what look like medicinal plants. Uh, there's a, 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 a mullein plant in bloom is clearly discernible and what looks like a small um, juniper tree. Uh, the, the grapevine is quite thick, so it indicates uh, he's been here for maybe a couple of years at least. Uh, an interesting detail is the bell cord. Um, maybe we could zoom out again, Anthony. Uh, the bell cord, it's a little hard to see, but it's hanging from these, the, the pole on the left, on the right, excuse me. And uh, there's a bell up there, almost indiscernible in the shadows of the, of the grape uh, leaves. But um, I think I think it means that Saint Anth that the uh, saint must have had some disciples or followers, and the bell is uh, what he uses to call them together for uh, discussions or or uh, or services. So, thank you for letting me go through this picture uh, in detail. The reason I did is because. Um, to show that there's a tremendous amount of detail in this, in this uh, picture. But at the same time, it's a very expansive landscape with fields, rivers, mountains, cities, uh, animals, domestic and wild, um, the saint himself, um, and and uh, and another person, the the shepherd, and all this other detail, uh, and yet uh, everything is in its place. There's no, uh, it's not a there's no chaos here. The picture is perfectly balanced. There's no need for uh, visual dynamic tricks to make it interesting. The mind wanders, or the eye wanders to this painting sort of like strolling through a beautiful, well-designed garden. There's something interesting to see everywhere, and yet it all coheres. It's all of a piece, the way Anthony, the way uh, Francis is seeing it now, all of a piece. Um, so I think, um, uh, and also, uh, also, it's a very dynamic situation, but at the same time, it's also uh, things are standing still. The action is frozen. So this, this picture has a lot of balancing of apparent and paradoxes in it. We don't know how long the saint or the donkey are going to stand there. Maybe Francis will move, maybe the donkey will start to graze, maybe the heron will take flight. Maybe the shepherds will start moving his flock, uh, or the rabbit will pop out or go back into, into his niche. Um, the light will certainly move as the clouds move along, but we have no, who could say how? Uh, the picture 
is uh, frozen, but it's full of potential. Anything could happen. For me, this recalls what Dogen calls Uji, time, being time. Uh, everything just as it is, complete in this moment, which has no length at all, and is therefore eternal. I think Bellini has recreated for us Francis's vision, a vision of sacred space with every rock, plant, and creature occupying its unique dharma position at this particular instant. Inseparable from past and present, but free of past and present. Unique and complete in itself at this moment. I, and everything is in balance. Uh, my teacher would say is an intimate communion with every other element within the painting. So I think Bellini has painted for us a Buddha land. So that's one kind of what I call a Zen picture. Uh, and by the way, it exemplifies all four of the categories I mentioned earlier. Uh, did I mention that? Um, so let's let's go uh, to um, uh, what I call illustration pictures. Now these pictures illustrate a known Zen story. Such stories are often subject to interpretation, and an artist's depiction can open up or shape uh, suggest uh, a view, a perspective we haven't considered before. It can also convey directly information or a perspective that's hard to communicate in language. And the word illustrate, by the way, comes from, from the Latin, illustrate, excuse me, illustare, to illuminate. Um, Take, for example, two pictures of Buddha coming down from the mountains after seeing the morning star. And by the way, this and the following series of pictures are all Chan, Chan uh, paintings, pictures from the uh, 13th and 14th centuries. Um, so image two, please, Anthony. So uh, this first representation of Buddha coming down from his enlightenment, uh, I'll call a spiritual, for want of a better term, a, a spiritual perspective or interpretation. Shakyamuni is seen at a distance from below. Uh, his features are indistinct, and he's surrounded by a nimbus of light, which I spoke earlier about that uh, feeling that light is emanating from a spiritual person. Uh, he descends along a tumbling mountain stream through an idealized landscape, hinting of precipitous slopes, craggy walls, a waterfall, and overhanging vegetation. The brushwork is delicate in some places. It's very strong and dark in others, 
which with the compositions opposing diagonal creates a, a visual, visually very dynamic um, image. The overall impression is of nature responding to this momentous first turning of the wheel with uh, an exuberant, almost explosive, celebratory, dynamic movement. Uh, and image three, please, Anthony. The second painting is by an artist called Hu Xifo, also 13th century, also Southern Song. But look how different it is. I'll call this a psychological interpretation. There's a lot of show, a lot of juggling to do. The uh, emphasis is entirely on the Buddha. There's no background, nothing else except the um, the kanji at the top. Uh, the brushwork is much less dramatic here than the previous, with only uh, subtle variations in weight and density. Uh, the Buddha's seems to be descending with the breeze at his back and his robe is gracefully floating. He's not starving, but he's quite emaciated and he's only recently given up his extreme ascetic practices. His extremely long toenails, and maybe we could zoom in on that, uh, are another sign of ascetic practice. Look at those. Uh, and going back to his, uh, going up to his uh, upper body, Anthony, his earlobes, uh, he's, uh, according to the convention, he's wearing, uh, uh, his earlobes are stretched out by the heavy earrings which he's worn all his life because of his noble uh, origins. Um, He's walking bent forward slightly with his hands in gasho, uh, as if in reverence. Uh, his expression is remarkable. Uh, his eyes are half shut, looking inwardly, it seems, even as he descends into the world. The corners of his mouth, only the corners, are slightly turned up while the center is set in a serious, almost stern way. The impression is that he's deeply absorbed in intense but delicate concentration, balanced on some infinitely rewarding tightrope or knife edge where he's neither touching or turning away. At least that's my impression. The kanji up above his head, on a uh, which are by contemporaries, say, at midnight he saw the morning star, and in the mountains made a cold remark. Before he had emerged from the mountains, that remark was traveling the world, colon. When I behold all living creatures, 
who have been Buddhas a long time, there's only you, poor old fellow, who still lacks all enlightenment. Kind of funny, wry, um, but poignant too. Um, thanks, Anthony. We can take this down now. So although I'm calling these pictures illustrations, that's really misleading because as far as I know, there's no text describing what Buddha was thinking or how he was feeling after his uh, enlightenment, only that he despaired of ever being able to teach anything about it and that he had to be talked into it by a deity. But here, uh, artists have given us their interpretations of that momentous occasion um, with a clarity and a force that would be difficult to match in language. A psychological interpretation, spiritual interpretation. There are many paintings like this. Uh, similarly, Uh, you know, I think that's going to have to be it for tonight. I'm so sorry. Let me just uh, show you one more painting to, to show a similar type of, um, uh, of illustration. Go to the next slide, please, Anthony. This is of uh, Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in uh, China. There's a series of these. We know the story of Bodhidharma, traveled a long time uh, to bring the Dharma to China, uh, met with the emperor, and it was a disaster. Uh, he left in disgust, or maybe the emperor said, get this creep out of here. Anyway, he then uh, uh, crossed the Yangtze and uh, went to Shaolin Temple. Uh, but you have to wonder, was there a, uh, any uh, esprit, esprit de l'escalier, a, a sense of, hmm, maybe that could have been handled a little differently. Maybe there was a diff better way to do that. I've had that uh, experience many times. And um, uh, maybe we could focus on the, on the, on the expression of the uh, of Bodhidharma here. In this not in all the other paintings, but in this one, you can see he's quite pained and regretful. His, uh, um, yeah, maybe uh, that's, uh, his eyebrows are contracted, his mouth is turned down, his eyes are open, but you get the sense that he's, he's not seeing anything. He's kind of re reviewing in his mind and his uh, mind's eye, what just went down. Um, and uh, you get that sense of uh, he's in transition. He's got to get past this to get to, uh, to, uh, to get on with his mission. But at this moment, he's feeling doubt, uncertainty, maybe remorse. Um, what did I come here for? I spent three years uh, on a boat or maybe overland trying to get here and 
lay the, lay the true Mahayana on this country. I had a, a shot at it, but, uh, uh, but you know, he just wasn't ready. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you very much for listening. I apologize for taking so long on, on these slides there. Um, I'd love to, um, so, but I'd be very interested in uh, hearing any comments or questions you might have. And um, yes, Barry. Um, um, microphone. I'm curious if you're a fan of Monet and his use of light. I mean, it's not symbolic, at least not in his later stuff, but, you know, various, it's all about light and yeah, yeah. All the in the moment, you know. He'll, Monet really broke it down, Surratt. That's a very interesting question. You know, uh, what it brings to mind is, is, is uh, to my mind right now is, what was Monet saying, really? Uh, he had to have broken clear of the academy, big time. He had to be no longer uh, representing classical imagery in his mind the way you did if you wanted to be a professional painter at that time. Uh, he leapt free of that and just tried to see what is this. And he saw that it's just light. It's just light um, and tried brilliantly, creatively, originally to, um, to capture that. And I'm thinking now that you mention it, that he had to have, I'm imagining, had to have some of that same sense that we saw in, in St. Francis of, wow. Yeah. I I don't know if this is true, but I, I had an art teacher tell me that um, the Impressionists, they came across these, like, goods were shipped from Japan, and they'd yeah, be wrapped yeah. in these, like, um I don't think thing. it was the Impressionists so much. Okay. The post-Impressionists, Cezanne, Gauguin, Van Gogh, um, um, what's the name of that cripple guy who did the Prince? Toulouse-Lautrec. They were enormously influenced. Uh, I think, I, uh, and as I understand, it was by prints that came across wrapping ceramics. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't see it so much that, you know, the, um, the perspective shown by overlapping planes and that sharp, uh, that, I don't know how to describe it, that composition, um, the particular kinds of dramatic compositional techniques, which Toulouse used so brilliantly in his, uh, in his, um, which they all use so brilliantly. Um, and um, so. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much, Barry. Any other, uh, has anyone else experienced that, um, had that experience of of uh, being uh, carried away by a visual impression in the mountains, uh, you know, it can happen anywhere. 
Yes, yes, I have, Oscar. I, it, it happened in the strangest of places, too. I was uh, standing in a parking lot in Reno um, just before sundown, and the clouds were overhead, and when it hit a certain angle, the entire sky turned golden, and it, it was truly stunning. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are, are, are moments when we get glimpses into eternity. There's some sense of uh, that pulls us out of our, our usual self-centered uh, minds and uh, just blows us away with the beauty of, of life. And it's, it's that light, the light that we respond to um, in, in, in this magical way. And that's why I'm, I'm playing with this idea of, uh, well, we see nothing but light. That this is what seeing is. Uh, the way our minds interpret this incoming reflected uh, uh, electromagnetic, you know, waves. Um, it's just light. Um, okay. Well, I just thought I would throw this in. It's not, I don't know if this really happened, but in Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, mm -hmm. there's the poet Bergot, and just before he dies, he sees that famous patch of light, which is from a Vermeer painting that was later figured out oh, yeah. and suddenly he figured out the meaning of life then he dropped dead <laughs> something like that yeah yeah it, that's it's it's uh interesting how proust um chose that image huh to to kind of denote some kind of fulfillment and uh I got it. I see it. I see it. Thank you, Seymour. Well, mine, mine came a few months ago when we were in Amsterdam, and it was like sunset, and there were beautiful clouds, and I, I just thought, oh my God, this is what the Flemish painters. This is exactly the sky. This is exactly the sky they were seeing. And now I'm seeing it, and I'm connected to them, and it just, it just was, it was really a sublime moment, you know, to see, because it's, the sky um, has the impression of being quite low. I don't know, it's because the lowlands, but the, the, the clouds seem low there, and, 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 uh, you know, it was winter, so the sun was low, very low, and it was going down too, and I don't know, just that moment of being connected to, you know, those painters seeing that same light. It was, it was really, yeah, beautiful moment, yeah. I was uh, sort of, especially intrigued with your analysis of the first painting 
with it being sort of a, a moment, so everything was so sort of frozen yeah. at the same time, you could see that at any moment anything would start to move or change. Yeah. And then that reminded me, I think it's Hokusei has a painting of like this very breezy time when these people are like walking along and the wind is so strong that their hats are flying off and they're leaping up and and it's like capturing the actual moment of movement. And then I loved that because you could, I mean, if we see differently, we can see that it's like a nanosecond of movement that's always going on. And so. Yes, we're really uh, in a prison, as it were, of our particular uh, perceptual capabilities, right. uh, which are amazing and, I mean, and uh, let us live. But it's just, and we assume that's the world. Mm -hmm. But um, a bat, you know, hears, hears the world. Mm -hmm. A dog smells the world. A shark uh, or other fish uh, feel the electromagnetic rays, not the electromagnetic, the electrical uh, currents of other creatures, which is looking to eat. So, so there's um, uh, birds. We have uh, three chemicals that allow us three in our nervous systems that are mediators for uh, uh, for light sensations and bring the impression of create the uh, impression of light in our brains. Excuse me, of color in our brains. Birds have five. They can see things we can't imagine seeing. Um, so, um, Reb says, uh, delusion is the ocean we swim in. We, it's it's <laughs> who we are. You know? But um, sometimes we can crack it open a little bit and see possibilities of another, uh, a broader, a bigger reality. No, Helen has her hand raised. Oh, yes, Helen. Oscar, uh, I'm tempted to say your your wonderful talk is illuminating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have a, a question I hope you won't um, take wrong, but I've been really intrigued by some movement in Black Lives Matter, particularly to shine a light or to raise the topic that light has connotations of good, dark has connotations of bad. And that there is a project that I think Earthlands and Emmanuel has been um, an example of finding beauty in darkness and uh, embracing the darkness. And I wonder, in your bringing practice and art and light together, if that has come into your investigation. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, 
It's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, well, the, my first response is um, those kinds of value judgments about dark and light, um, they fall squarely within the framework, the realm of delusion, right? Because dark and light have no independent existence. They completely are a function. One is a function of the other. Just like bad, good, all the dualities that around which we build our lives, which oftentimes. Um, certainly in, I would say in European, Caucasian culture, um, white, there is that kind of value um, judgment. And, um, and we, uh, certainly I, am a heir to that. Um, I think that whatever person's skin color, they respond to light in, in the way that I've been talking about tonight. I, I believe that's the case. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say. Earthlin, of course, is very familiar with this dichotomy and with its fundamental emptiness. So, thank you for your for your work in this area, Helen, which has been going on for a long time and which is so valuable and needed. Um, appreciate it very much. Thank you. Yeah, um, I was going to say something kind of similar to what Helen was saying in that I, I felt, I have felt, um, one of the things that, that I appreciate so much about the Zen practice is that it does give us permission to delve into the darkness and also, um, as you were saying, well, as we say, uh, don't we say something like, uh, in the darkness there is light, but don't see it as light. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's really, there's really no difference, but we couldn't have light if we didn't have dark. So um, at least that's the way I've been thinking of it too. And just one other thing, I, when you ask about an experience that I had, I, I for some reason it stuck in my mind that one, one time I was, it wasn't a direct experience of the light, but it was a, a joyous um, appreciation of light that I saw in the face of a child as <laughs> the child was being pushed in a, in a, um, a cart or whatever you Scro okay. Stroller, yeah, and I was walking toward the child, and and then he, he was looking up at the sky. He or she was looking up at the sky, and the leaves were blowing, and the light was flashing, you know, over him. And I, I just uh, uh, it made me feel so joyful. <laughs> so thank yeah. you, thank you for your. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> a wonderful story. Um, picking up on what Karen was talking about, um, 
I think we've all seen the light in a child's face or in a, a loved one's face. And we know what that means. But when I, 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 I'm seeing my granddaughter's face at the moment and that light isn't light. <laughs> you, you see the light, but it's not like a um, glow. It, it's that inner light, which is um, maybe the, the reconciliation here of light and dark. It, in a certain sense, that kind of light doesn't have anything to do with light and dark. Mm -hmm. it, it's presence shimmering kind of if if that makes any sense i recall it uh, well you talked about the mountains and i don't know how many times up in the mountains i've just been astounded by the light the, you know the morning light first peeking over you know where there's been the the glow and there's been daylight but all of a sudden when the sun comes over the mountain in the bright light and but one particular time and i still when i'm scrolling through the pictures i get to a point where the, it was a the sky after a storm uh up over the just over the west side of Mono Pass. There's a little lake with a little hut, with a stone hut. Yeah. And there was a, a storm had come. And uh, it's kind of funny because it soaked all my cousin's clothes. We were out for a day hike over to... <laughs> he didn't, and he didn't zip his door of his tent. But anyway, but the... The bright of the sun coming through the dark clouds, you know, it, it is the, the dark clouds that give the bright light its brightness. Right. You know, um, you know it, it is the juxtaposition of the two mm -hmm. that, is, that gives it the drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, we create that, um, that distinction our, our uh, discursive, discriminating minds make that distinction. But um, when, when, the, when the distinctions we've created and lived by momentarily are resolved, reconciled, there's a feeling of uh, what, whatever the, the medium or the, is a feeling of great um, Resolution, satisfaction, putting to rest uh, our conflicts um, for at least a moment. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I, that's a new thought. Well, I, I can give. Yes. Go yeah. ahead, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Were you pointing at a light or something? <laughs> no. Uh, so, um, 
I've had these uh, visual uh, moments as well, but we can we can we can flip it around too. Uh, take a take a light in the top corner of a room, a very small room, in a in a in a in a police station where someone's being interrogated, and the light is bright, right in their eyes. So I, I mention this only because these are stories we put, we, we have these feelings of joy. I've experienced it as well. I know what you're talking about, and I'm not trying to invalidate that. But to ascribe it to light is a creation of our dualistic mind, in a sense, or maybe just to forget about trying to explain it uh, uh, as a story or not. Light can be viewed in a very negative way, too, as the example I've given. So um, there's something else going on also. It's not just light. What could that be? Oh, I, you know, I wouldn't venture a guess. But uh, I just throw that out for us to, you know, compare. I think Maria had a, had a question, and maybe that'll be the last one. Huh? Well, I just had a brief comment that um, the light shining from this lamp against the flowers on the altar is making a really beautiful shadow behind you that's actually, yeah, it's gorgeous, and it's actually <clears throat> a lot, I mean, it's very different than the flowers on the altar. So it's kind of like the absence of the light is really beautiful there. I hope it's on the video. Yeah. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate your comments. It's beautiful.